Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been 40 years now, and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15% off your subscription. That's Fangoria.com, promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15%. I'm Mick Garrison. Welcome once again to the Fun Size Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And with me in the studio is my producer, Joe Russo, Hello. who is going to ask your questions of me. So I've got, I've got another batch of good questions this week. Um, awesome. The first one is a, a very flattering question, question I think. Uh-oh. Uh, so Am Michael, I Michael, I know, right? You might. Michael Olson asks, I've observed that yours is some of the best adaptations of Stephen King's work. What makes that so? Well, I... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a better way to phrase the question is, why do you and Stephen connect Okay, that is, so well. yeah. I mean, it's certainly not up to me to know who <laughs> does better than than whom. Sure. Um, you know, I think if my King adaptations work for you, it's because I love them as much as you do. You know, I The Shining was, if not my favorite book of all time, at least my favorite uh, horror novel of all yeah. time. Could you even imagine when you read that book for the first time that you'd end up directing it? No way. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's also like watching Psycho. Like watching imagining. Psycho yeah, when right. I'm eight years old yeah. and thinking, I'm going to do Psycho 4, yeah. damn it. Yeah. Uh, but the respect I have for King's work, I, I love what he does. And I've seen lots of adaptations that don't really work. And the reason right. I feel that they don't is the further you get from King... And what he wrote. He writes very cinematically. The he further does. you get yeah. away from that, the further you get away from the the quality of the story, you know, the structure he sets forth, but also the humanity of it. Right. That is what's most striking. The horror in a Stephen King story is horrific and terrifying and suspenseful because you give a shit about those people. Right. Those people are complex and deep and smart and they're people you care about. They are surrogates for us. So showing the respect to those characters and the respect to the written word 
Now, movies and books are different things, and that's been often said by me, by King, and many others. But um, the essence of a book is still the essence of the, of the film. And they're different media, but they both are stories to be told. And, and uh, you know, there's a plot, there's a structure, there's, there's a way to go about it. Right. Well, I think some of your work... And and I think you probably would agree with this too. You've been you've leaned more on the side of stay true to the book as opposed to adapting it for whatever purposes. Definitely. Now there has been an instance where I went far from his story. Right. Uh, first of all, Stephen King wrote the screenplays for The Stand, The Shining, and Sleepwalkers, right. which I directed. Um, one of my favorite adaptations of King that I've done personally, just because of my connection to it was writing the bullet. Right. That was a 30-page short story that had a lot of room to move. To turn it into a feature, I couldn't just tell that 30-page story, but right. added in like at least half of all original material. I set it in a different time period. The story was written in 1999 and took place then. I set it in 1969 because it had a thematic importance to me and put a lot of things from my own life into it, the relationship between uh, the, the son and the mother, um, the, the would-be artist who has very dark uh, vision uh, and romanticizing death and things like that, yeah. which which were not so much a part of the King story, but fit into it, and was something King was very happy with the film when he saw it, and right. so knowing that it wasn't going to be exactly the same as that thirty-page short story, but it's respect for the people, for the story, and for the entire attitude that that King brings to his work and his voice. Well, I think that is very well put. <laughs> uh, I know. I agree. I, I really do. I know. I think. I think that uh, the people who and the fans that, at least that I've interacted with through our social media, that have responded the most to your specific King adaptations, tend to be the ones who are uh, more well read in the Kingosphere. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think. Yeah. I think that kind of goes hand in hand. Um, so there's uh, a reason his is the most popular voice in publishing. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Raythan Kruger asks, what are some of your favorite needle drops in horror movies besides your own? Besides my own. <laughs> uh, I do love putting great songs that are appropriate into movies <clears throat> and to come up with other examples. I'm not sure, but there's one that comes to mind. Yeah. And what's that? It's an American werewolf in London uses the song Blue Moon in like half a dozen, half a dozen different versions, yeah. different recordings. And they're perfect. They work great. Sometimes it's crooning. Sometimes it's more rhythmic. Uh, sometimes it's, it's just um, instrumental. But the way John Landis put those to work in that score. It's an Elmer Bernstein score, right. but suddenly Blue Moon comes into play several times, most notably during the transformation right, sequence right, that takes place. Right. So I would say as needle, drop go, uh, needle drops go, that would be one that, that is most notable that to is, me. That is an iconic moment in horror for sure. <laughs> it is indeed. Absolutely. Uh, Jack is the is a berry, right? <laughs> I've noticed you said several times that the key to a good horror film is 
for it to be a good drama first. But what about horror shorts, where there isn't as much time to tell a full narrative and character arc? Do you feel a good horror short should still possess these qualities, or could they be something more experimental or concept-driven? Well, shorts can be whatever you want them to be. Right. And if you're, excuse me, if you're making an experimental short, that's something entirely different. But if you're telling a story, whether it's a horror story or a drama, all the same rules still apply. Right. Whether it's short or long, it's still got characters, it's got an arc, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, I'm not a big fan of punchline stories where it doesn't... It all just builds to a punchline because if you guess the punchline, then you've wasted your last 10 minutes or or so uh, waiting for it to happen. I think story and character are by far the most important elements of any film, any book. Uh, But, you know, if you're talking about Unchain Andalou, where, you know, you've got uh, uh, Salvador Dali uh, doing just visuals. Uh, that's valid in its own right Right. and fantastic. I love seeing something like that or an experimental animation or things where um, it's a a combination of sound and vision that's just there for that purpose. But if you're talking about horror being an exception to the drama rule in my book, uh, a horror story as a short versus a horror feature as a short... If it's lacking story and character, then I think it's lacking crucial elements. Right, right. I think it also depends on the length of time you have to tell your story, too. Yeah, if it's a two-minute story, then it's okay to just uh, end with the eyeballs coming out. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, mean, you know, if like when you look at something like Nightmare Cinema, where we had about 20 minutes-ish for each story... I mean, I think then, yes, you really should focus on character and story. But yeah, like you said, if it's going to be a one, two, three minute piece, yeah. you know, sometimes those punchline structures work better. I've always thought, I always tell people that if you're going to explore shorts, it's either, it depends on the length, obviously. Yeah. But if you're doing a super short where it's like five minutes or under, you either are telling a, a solid punchline story or you're doing a kind of glimpse into the life of a character. Yeah. It's very hard to tell a full arc. In you two you or need three to minutes. engage, and right. e- even in a feature film, uh, if you're switching the channel and you come uh, upon a movie, you want to engage in every single scene and not just have dead spots. You know where oh I have to convey this information or whatever, but engaging whether it's a minute or a hundred minutes, it's all about engaging an audience, and usually you do that with character. I couldn't agree more. Uh, well, so our main topic for this AMA today is uh, um, I've been again we've been getting a lot of questions about your early career, and and uh, I wanted to talk about. Uh, how you got your job at Avco Embassy <laughs> and the first movie you worked on there, which is a legendary horror movie called The Fog. So, well, take it away. <laughs> I was doing my interview show on the Z Channel in Los Angeles at the time, and uh, it uh, had just been canceled um, without them ever canceling it. Well, what do you mean there? Uh, nobody ever notified me. Uh, really? I just called in to see when my studio time was going to be for the... They had just gotten rid of the program director and brought in a new guy. Oh, wow. Who, by the way, later on 
killed himself and his wife. Um, oh my gosh! Just as a side story, aren't you glad you asked this? Wow! <laughs> um, and so uh, I was calling in to find out what uh, my studio time was and what movies they were showing, so I could arrange the guests. Yeah. And they said, "Oh, um, uh, we're we're not doing one this week." And I said, "Oh, what what happened? Uh, I, I I don't think they're going to be doing anymore." This was an assistant who told wow. me. Wow! So I, I never oh to this day never got. Uh, official notice that they'd canceled it the show. It just kind of just stopped. Yeah. But I was doing that show at the time, <clears throat> and uh, I met with um, Avco Embassy about the idea of doing specialized publicity uh, for the genre. And right. I had this experience as a genre journalist. I'd written for Cine Fantastique and Fangoria and Starlog and the yeah. like. Then I'd been doing these <laughs> interviews on television, and I went in with a plan saying... You know, there are all these conventions and film festivals and things where it's not the standard way you reach an audience. You know, you don't just advertise on TV, but you go to the grassroots. And the president of the company, who was a terrific guy, Bob Ramey, who later left and went to Universal uh, to run that studio. Oh, I sense that's maybe how that transitioned. Okay. Exactly. (laughs) And he became president of the uh, Motion Picture Academy after that. Oh, wow. Uh, Really good guy. He he thought it was a good idea, had me meet with their head of uh, publicity, Herman Cass, uh, old school publicity guy. Yeah. And uh, they brought me on, and basically I was my own boss doing that, and I hired myself to do making of the fog right so that was so the fog was your first first making of that. right i just i i started working for avco only on the fog wow okay got so, it. so it was like it was like let's see how the fog goes and right then we'll they'd already it. made they'd already shot the film and it was in post-production oh i oh i didn't realize that. and i had interviewed carpenter before and i knew him vaguely right at the time And then uh, I got to know him better as he was in post-production then. And my making of was just taking clips from the film that they'd shot and then doing interviews with John Carpenter, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, Janet Lee, and Deborah Hill. Right. And turned it into a talking heads with quips sort of. Uh, making so funny because when I think about watching it, I feel like they must have had some behind-the-scenes footage, though, too, right? No? Uh, maybe they did, yeah. but I wasn't yeah. there for right, that. Right, right, right. So I so, had hired myself to do that yeah. and put that together, and then when it became apparent that they were going to have a horror slate with the howling right. and scanners, yeah. um, then uh, they kept me on for that. Because they really became like one of the independent genre companies. They were the horror genre company. They yeah. had Carpenter, Cronenberg, and Dante, and Coscarelli all at the same time. Yeah. So a phenomenal place for me to be uh, at that time. And then, you know, the David Cronenberg was doing Scanners, and yeah. so, uh, so I did. So specifically with The Fog, I mean, you know, you had met John, obviously, previously on on halloween briefly but yeah uh, yeah um you know what what kind of things did you pick up from watching him in editorial like was there anything you were well i i wasn't able to watch much of that but mainly you know just um seeing what i did just mainly i was seeing dailies right uh and not not in on the whole process but 
just seeing the stuff that gets cut out right and just seeing all of the different setups and how he would work and and know that he didn't shoot anything he wasn't going to use right a lot of filmmakers will cover themselves and shoot from beginning to end in every setup. Right. Uh, but John knew, okay, I need a close-up from here to there. I need a wide shot from here to there. He might shoot a master all the way through, right. but all the bits and pieces, not necessarily. So if somebody else had it in their hands to cut it, they'd have to cut it the way he intended it. Right, right. And that's is, how he worked later smart. on when he did television. Yeah. Uh, when he did, uh, someone is watching me yeah, and can't Elvis. recut it if you don't shoot it. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I learned a little bit from that, but mainly, um, you know, the, the work was, was getting it out to, to the grassroots and, yeah. and it, having learned from Charlie Lippincott at Star Wars, yeah. um, I was the second person to go out on the road to these places, these conventions and the like, and share material, clips, would you show the, showing the slides. Of, or what would you show? What would you? I would actually do a slideshow. Oh, wow. Um, physical 35 millimeter slides. Wow. <laughs> and uh, set it up and tell them about the movie and, and uh, you know, get them excited about it. Maybe run the, uh, the making of or or a trailer, and, and this would be months before the movie would open. And there were a lot of print magazines in the genre besides right. Cine Fantastique and Starlog and Fangoria, and I would service them with everything they need. Navco must have been very happy because, I mean, the movie ended up being a, a very good success. It was a huge hit, nowhere near what Halloween was. Sure. But Halloween was the most successful independent film of all time when right. it opened. right. Uh, or when it closed eventually. <laughs> uh, and uh, The Fog did really well. It grossed, I think it cost a million bucks, maybe two. It grossed over 10, which was a big return for right. them. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, well, we'll pick back up and dive into some of the other Avco embassies on, on other AMAs. But uh, right. but I, it was fun to kind of go back in time and, and glimpse that period. So yeah. thank you, Mick. Well, thanks for joining us on another Postmortem AMA. And you can send us your questions to Joe Russo Tweets on Twitter, to Postmortem MG on Twitter, to Postmortem Graham on Instagram. And I look forward to your questions and see you next time. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.